Take your Bibles, please, and open them in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel. <clears throat> and it's going to be in Luke's Gospel and chapter 3. Luke's Gospel and chapter 3. <clears throat> yes, we sung that hymn and had a lovely theme this morning, Draw Me Nearer, 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 Blessed Lord. Now, we're dealing in our subject, aren't we, with God's program for dealing with Satan. And I'm very glad there is a program, and I'm very glad that God has decreed that Satan's works will be undone and Satan himself will be destroyed. For Satan is the one that doesn't want us to draw near unto God. He doesn't want it. He never wanted it when we were sinners. No way he wanted us to find the law. Never. He never wanted us to draw near. And his fame would have us not do it as saints, as it were, as believers. He would want us to keep us at a distance, you see. Sin is the great separator between God and man. And Satan, who is the originator of sin, you see, he originated the distance and the separation. And he's the captor now. He holds men in their sin, captives. And he holds them captives at his will because he doesn't, Want them to draw near unto God. Blessed be God, he has decreed that this tyranny and work of Satan will be brought to an end. Understand that the destruction of Satan, the program of God, is one of God's decrees. When God in his will decrees something, it must and it will definitely happen. The decretive will of God. There's his permissive will whereby he, he does decree, he does say, I should say, he makes it clear what his will is about something. It may not always happen. For instance, he's made his will clear about you and I and how we should behave and how we should turn from sin and live pure lives. But it may not be fully realized because of us, you see. We don't comply with his will and what he has said. But when he decrees something, his decreative will, it will happen. Now he decreed that the Lord Jesus Christ would come into the world. It happened. He has decreed that he's going to come back again. It will happen. He has decreed that Satan will be dealt with. It has happened, is happening, and will finally happen in the day when he is destroyed. God has said so. We saw that brief plan set out in Genesis 3 where it was said very clearly, Satan, you will not have things all your own way. You will face opposition. One will finally come in great power and yet in outward weakness and there will be one final confrontation and battle in which this one, the seed of the woman, will actually crush your head. He will render you powerless. And from then on will be the certainty of your destruction. Now that's what we're looking at. And we looked in the Old Testament, didn't we? And we saw God overall holding Satan within certain limits and boundaries. And then we saw the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world in his birth. And we realized that God was moving forward in his program and he was confronting Satan in his own domain by sending into the world none, he who was none less than his own son 
and yet in mystery the seed of the woman and this was the one born who would under the hand of God deal with sin and with Satan once for all. We looked at his birth and then we looked at that period of time as he was prepared in those first 30 years. How he was brought up in that beautiful godly home, preserved, taught, guided in an atmosphere where he could grow in wisdom and in stature and the grace of God was upon him. As he was nurtured by those godly parents, Joseph and Mary, in an atmosphere where mentally and physically and spiritually he could grow under the favour of God's grace. As a child growing up to the age of 12, enjoying the fullness of a God who is a giving and a loving God and a God of grace. It's a beautiful picture of what every godly home should be. And every child has a right to be brought up in that kind of atmosphere where there is nurture for them physically, mentally and spiritually and they can know all the joy and the givingness of God. So children are happy and bright and free and they love each other and the Lord and their home and the parents. All that's normal. That's what a Christian home should represent today. And then there came the time in his life in the Lord Jesus at the age of 12 where he committed himself to the Lord of the Lord, where he went into the temple and he listened and he asked questions and he demonstrated his upbringing and then his own commitment to the things of God. And then he went down and he grew in wisdom and he grew in stature and in favour alongside of God and alongside of men. Understanding the meaning of fellowship with God, of loving his God and of loving his neighbour as himself. And now things are into the next phase. And we're looking now from here in the next week or two at the life of the Lord Jesus lived as a man and the way in which he entered into Satan's domain and he finally was undoing the works of the devil. That's what he was doing. And he was going to finally destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So we go to Luke chapter 3, and we look at verse 23, and it says, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. Jesus himself began, actually, another translation, began his ministry at the 30 years of age. So now we've moved to the next phase. The phase when the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come out in public and undertake the great work of his life, climaxing in the death that he would die, in the victory that he would ultimately gain. Very well. 30 years of age. Now, there's quite an important age, because that was the age when King David came to the throne, for instance. That was the age when he took the throne at 30. And then it was the age also in which Joseph went out and he was governor over all the land. That, too, was at the age of 30. It was the age at which the Levites, the Levitical priests, took up their job as a priest in the tribe of Levi officially. All right, At 20 years of age, <coughs> the males of Israel, they were uh, qualified to join the army, called up at 20 to be in the army. The priests of Levi, right? At 20, they went into what would be called a period of training. But by the age of 30, they came out officially in the service of God. And that's a lovely picture of what we've got here. At the age of 30, the Lord Jesus is coming forward into public 
in order to undertake the great service of God. And he is going to destroy him that's got the power of death. He's going to undo the works of the devil. He's going to deal with sin. And he's going to bring mankind back unto God. That is what we enjoyed together this morning. And the whole thing begins here in verse 21. What was the first public action where we see the Lord Jesus declaring himself before all the people? Verse 21. And it's to deal this morning, firstly, with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the people were baptized. I want, I want you to notice the wording of Luke, see? And just enter into the verses as I read them. You know, picture them in your own mind and put yourself in the position where it would seem that you know, you're standing there watching this actually happening. This is how you get into the truth and the, of the Gospels. This is how you get the blessing of reading the Gospels. Don't read them remotely and historically. You know, enter into the picture that's given to you and put yourself watching the circumstance and noting all the details. Live in the picture of the Gospel as it's given to you. Live in it. It'll, be a, it'll come to life. You'll see truth you've never seen before. Because when we're reading the Gospels, and I don't want to get sidetracked, but we're reading one of the most important passages of Scripture. Do you realise that? We're reading the most imp- the centre of the Word of God. Everything in the Old Testament finds its meaning in these Gospels, in the, the Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And all the basis of the New Testament is found in the teachings of this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, recorded in the Gospels. Enter into the blessings of the Gospels, not just their history, not just their culture, but their the, the truths that were being enacted, the reality of what was really, really happening, and you'll get the blessing. Now, we're going to stand for a minute at the baptism. That's what we're going to do. And it starts off and it says, when all the people were baptized, all the people, came to pass that Jesus also, being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened. Now normally when you think of the heavens open, you think of the sort of wide parting asunder and you're gazing up into the very glories of God and of heaven itself. Now the word here isn't quite like that because that's not quite the event you've got here. The event you've got here is that there was a, a cleft in the, in the heavens. It's as though, you know, the clouds just split and then the very up you went and it was splitting, splitting, splitting to an opening. And you were immediately drawn to look up for a minute. Something's going to go on from up in there through that cleft. Right? And what happened was this. He is praying and the, the cleft, the, the, the heaven is open. The Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, came out of that cleft. You had no mistake where it came from. You looked up and you thought, ah. And it said, thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. Oh, over and over we say, 30 years of the Lord Jesus' life has passed. We are not told very much about those 30 years, we say. Well, we looked last week and we found we were told quite a bit. 
But this is the ultimate revelation of what those 30 years were like. God said, this man has lived a life that has been totally and completely pleasing to me. Right from the moment he had took that first breath, as it were, there was nothing in his life that he ever did that didn't please his God. Isn't that beautiful? That's heaven's testimony, heaven's revelation, heaven's declaration of the 30 years of life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> let's go through it again. It's lovely. He is baptised. Right? He is kneeling in prayer. That's incredible. Kneeling in prayer. The Lord Jesus kneeling in prayer. The dove, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, descends upon him from out of that cleft up there in the heavens. And then a voice speaks. This is my beloved son. Get that picture. There's a baptising John. <clears throat> there's a praying Christ. There's a descending dove. And there's a heavenly voice. Now, get into the sequence of events within those few verses. It says, when all the people were baptised. When all the people were baptised, then the Lord Jesus Christ comes. The other Gospels tell us that there were crowds coming to John the Baptist that time, those days, through those, that period of time. Crowds, they came out of Judea, they came out of Jerusalem, they came out of the whole region of Galilee. And it says, when all the people were baptised, it could be for that day, <clears throat> or it could be for the whole period of time. But it was like this, John has been there for a long period of time. And he's been baptising man, woman, whatever, one after the other. On and on it goes. Can you not picture the crowds coming out? One by one they went down to John the Baptist to be baptised of him. They've come in their tens, they've come in their fifties, they've come in their hundreds. It's probably they've come in their thousands. Over and over you see them making their way to John to be baptised of him. These are men and women who are repentant sinners. They hear that Christ is coming. They want to be ready for him. They know they have been sinful. They feel the weight and the guilt of their sin. They are truly repentant. And I think I see them one by one coming out of their houses and moving down the narrow streets or climbing down from the hills and coming through the scrub, whatever it is. They're making their way, men and women, jocular and laughing and having a joke as they go. I don't think so. These are repentant sinners who feel the guilt of their sin. I think there's a certain humility about them, uh, almost a, a sense of dejection. And I, I look on their faces and I, I don't see happiness and mirth. I, think, I see a sense of grief, a sense of guilt. This is repentance. These are people realising their sin and are coming to confess it and acknowledge it so that they're ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And John meets them one by one and he looks into their face. Ha-ha, there's a repentant sinner. And then there's the next one to go. Ha-ha, there's a repentant sinner. And the next, ha-ha, there's a... Who, you? Excuse me, you Pharisee. I can see by your face you're not what you're pretending to be. You offspring of vipers, you produce fruits worthy of repentance. Next one on, please. So it goes. 
And at the end of the busy day, as it were, he turns and he faces the last of his applicants for baptism. And he catches his breath, for he looks right into the face, not of a repentant sinner, but into the face of a man in whom there has been no guile. That stops him in his tracks. This is different, he says. And you read the other Gospels, he says, Oh, but I have need to be baptised of thee. You should be baptising me, he says. The Lord says, Now wait on, John. You wait on, wait a minute. We are here to do the will of God. Suffer us now to fulfil all righteousness. I will be baptised and you will be baptised by Sorry, you will do the baptizing. I will be baptized. See, I says, I will identify myself with the godly of Israel as one of them, those whom I've come to draw near to. He will be numbered even then with those who are the transgressors. That's what he did in that baptism. As he took his place alongside of the very sinners that he had come to save in order to bring them back to God. He says, I will draw near to them and be in their place. It becomes us to fulfill all righteousness, John. And then John, what does he do? He suffers it. And he goes along with the will of God and he baptizes the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get this tremendous happening. As they, there's a cleft in the heavens and the voice rings out, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Indeed, it's a testimony to the purity of the nature and the sinlessness of the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. God would say, he's my son. He is the same as me. Identified and related to me. Part of me and from me. See the full identity there. As God the Father is acknowledging who he is and acclaiming the life, witnessing to the life that he has led. This, the voice says, is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the commentary on those 30 silent years. And as the voice is ringing out, so this strange and mystical form of a dove is coming down from above. And it is the form of the Holy Spirit coming upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there primarily and definitely so that John will know that this person is who he thinks he is. He already has seen the difference. He knows he is superior to himself, the baptizer. And he has already got the glimpse of the fact that this is the coming one. But he's had a promise that if you see the one on whom you see the Holy Spirit descending as a, as a dove, this is he. Now understand something. The Holy Spirit was already there in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Long before, the Holy, long before that dove came down. You remember, where did it begin? Where did the relationship of the Holy Spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ begin? Where did it begin? It began right at the beginning, in the womb. Conceived of the Holy Ghost in the womb. John the Baptist, the uh, <coughs> angel said, you know, the, the Spirit of God will be upon him from the womb. But in Christ it's in the womb. And you know what it says in John's Gospel? He gives not the Holy Spirit by, by measure unto him. He didn't have a measure of the Holy Spirit. He was indwelt with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took his place as a man and who laid aside all his rights of uh, Godhead, he laid them to the side, not to use them, but to become a real man in dependence with the limitations of a man, depending on God, yet with all the power of God within him, because the Holy Spirit was there bringing that power to him. 
But now the dove comes down to tell John who it is. And not only that, in that dove coming down, there is a holy anointing. Because the Lord Jesus is poised now at the age of 30 on that new phase of life which is opening up before him in which he is going to undertake the entire program of God in redemption and destruction. And the consecration of his God is upon him. God, as it were, is declaring, Behold my servant, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. There on the banks of Jordan, the scene is beautifully set. And the servant of Jehovah goes forth in the fullness of the anointing for service. The consecration of his God is upon him. And the power of God is within him. And from here he will go out to do battle and he will declare very quick, very plainly, as it tells us in Mark's Gospel, as he preached, that the time is fulfilled. It's fulfilled. Yes, the time decreed is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. See, the triune God is at work here now. As the great program against Satan and sin is beginning, God the Father, the voice from heaven, God the Holy Spirit, the dove descending, and none less than God the Son, my beloved Son, in his humility, drawing near to men, identifying himself with repentant sinners, though he had no need of it himself, for he it is, the part of who he is, God, who has become now manifested in the flesh. See, the rule of another world, and the ruler from another world is come, and he's coming to invade the kingdom of darkness and destroy the ruler of this world and to undo the works of the devil. The, the battle is about to begin. That's what we're looking at here in the baptism. It's about to begin, right? You know, <laughs> it's going to be an open assault now. Not God, as it were, in heaven just restraining and containing, but moving in, deliberately confronting. And there's going to be an open assault. This is the promised seed. This is the second man. This is the Lord from heaven. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what it is. This is the Christ of God. Come to do battle with Satan as great David's greatest son. David never lost a battle. He fought the battles of the Lord. He never lost one of them. Great David's greatest son will certainly not be vanquished now. See, he's come. He's come to condemn sin. He's come to confront Satan. That is how he worked. We'll see this as we move through. He went directly and he decried sin. He denounced sin. He condemned sin. He never mixed his words. He confronted Satan ruthlessly. Let us as a church never fail in speaking for God to confront sin. You know, we don't call it a mistake. We don't call it a weakness. It is sin against God. It is part of the work of the devil within us and our fallen nature and who and what we are coming out into display in rebellion against God. And you confront evil. No, you don't allow it. No, you don't mix with it. You don't take a little bit of good from it if you think you can find some in it. And you don't try and take the best point of view about it. What is right is right. What is wrong is wrong. What is sin is sin. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus is doing. And will do as we move on. He is coming as the light, the true light coming into the world. And he will lighten every man. He's going to bring a message that will set 
the captive free. Because what it's going to do is deal with the one who is the captivator. And nothing can stop him now. Because God is at work. Clearly right up to this point of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan has achieved nothing in trying to stop God and to stop the Lord Jesus Christ. The warrior has come, the warrior Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will overcome and have the victory. And he'll have the victory again and again. He will. He will triumph gloriously from here on. He will destroy him. And we are poised as we get to this point in the reading of Luke's Gospel. We're poised because we're looking forward now. We're going to see the unfolding of a powerful ministry. We're going to see God at work, a mighty work. But there's something he must do first. And that's chapter 4 of Luke. All right? We'll just pick up, we'll be picking out bits of the, the sequence of the gospel to show you. And what's that? Now, this in chapter 4, you look at it. <coughs> First one. This is the record of the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go through all the details of it, but I'm going to show you just the broad picture because this is incredible. The battle's about to begin, all right? The battle's about to begin. The public declaration. The war is on. That's what's happening here. As God brings him forth and heaven speaks, baptized, moves out into public ministry, in the service of God, as it were, like a true priest, to bring the people to God and to bring God to the people. That's what he's going to do. But look what it says. I'm going to read it. Just read it. Verses 1 and verses 2. That's all. And the last verse at the end. Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, well, we can understand that from the baptism because that's where he's coming from. He returns from Jordan and he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, can I just say this? Mark says he was driven by the Spirit. All right? Not led, driven. So, of course, it's the same idea, but there's a forcefulness and a determination about this. This is a, this is a direct action of God, right? And being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, afterwards he hungered. Now go to the end there, in verse 13. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, and actually that's every temptation, it looks to me as though the devil used every art that he possessed. He's like a, uh, shall we say, he's leading his army of evil, but he's used up all his bullets. Every temptation, every tactic he had, he departed from him for a season, or actually it's until an opportune time. The devil never gives up. He can't give up. The reason the devil never gives up and can't give up is because he's evil and only evil and evil, evil, evil. So he will always do evil. For him to give up would have been doing good. He's not that. Even to give up would have been wisdom. He's not wise. Wisdom comes from above. The devilish wisdom doesn't know what is right and wrong. And Jesus returned in the power of spirit into Galilee. And there went a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in all this synagogue, being glorified of all. Right, now keep that in your mind. Get a view of the temptation maybe that you've never seen before, because I've never seen it like this before. All right? Notice, first of all, he is led. The Holy Spirit, it's an action of God whereby he as the servant is directed forcefully and powerfully into a certain line of action. In other words, he's told and driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. This is 
This is not Satan taking an initiative and coming out to meet the Lord the minute he's been baptised. It's not that. What it is, is God taking the initiative. Right? And what it is, is coming out into the attack. He is taking his Christ and he is sending him deliberately to directly confront Satan. As it were, making the Lord Jesus Christ available. The very presence of Satan, the enemy himself. God is internal control of this entire situation. Please never lose that sense. God is always in control. He's in control of the affairs of the entire world from beginning to end. He's in control of the entire affairs of our international world at the present time. He's in control of the affairs of our nation at the present time. And he's in control of everything that's happening in your life at the present time. Alright? God is on the throne and keep saying it. The sovereignty of God. He is the ultimate ruler. But get the picture here now. Come back to this. We have a man, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a man with all the limitations and constraints of being a man. With all its weaknesses known and felt. Because he became a man. You must understand this. He laid aside those other glorious powers and limited himself to the constraints of manhood. I mean, he, he gets tired and, and he's hungry. If he was there using, drawing on his own inherent Godhead, then he would not get weary and neither would he be hungry. I mean, the angels have to come and minister to him in Matthew to help him afterwards, but God doesn't grow hungry and God does not grow weary. This is the Lord Jesus and he is a man and he's in a dreadful situation in the wilderness and as a perfect man he's there in the full power of the Holy Spirit to confront the enemy and for the enemy as it were to come out and to inspect him. And he is there in the power of the Holy Spirit yes in the weakness of manhood but in the power of the Holy Spirit and he has in his hand only one sword, one weapon. And it's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I wish we as Christians could realize in the great battle against sin and death and hell, we need one weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why I preach for no other reason. No, I'm not fulfilling some ambition I've got. No, I'm not loving the fact that I'm spouting on a platform. As a matter of fact, there are days when I hated the burden of it, the responsibility of it. But I must preach the word. I must preach the word. Even in this little place, wherever I go, I must declare the word of God. This is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Pardon me for saying it so forcefully. Here's the Lord Jesus in the weakness of manhood, in the power of the Holy Ghost, with the sword of the Spirit in his hand, confronting the mighty ruler of the darkness of this world. And he's going to get the victory. He's going to get it. It reminds you of the days when David confronted Goliath. Do you remember that? It's a terrific picture. Go and read it for yourself in the book of Samuel. You know, you've got the two armies. You've got the army of the Philistines. And you've got the army of Israel and a valley between. They're going to have a fight. They're going to have a war. And uh, what, what happens is out comes this incredible, incredible creature, Goliath. I mean, he's, do you realise he's the best part of three metres high? And he's got a, 
a, shield, a sword, a shield bearer in front of him carrying this massive shield. He's got the most colossal sword in his hand and his armor, well, it, it beggars description. And he just walks out and stands in front of the army of Israel and says, send me a man to fight me. If you can kill me and beat me, well, that's fine. We'll be your servants. We'll surrender right here and now. But if I kill him, <laughs> then you've got to surrender here and now. You know, every man, in the, every man in the army fled for his life. It says that. The men just fled before him, right? There was no one <laughs> prepared to face the giant until this, this David comes along. This David, who was to be anointed God's king. But he came along as shepherd boy, and it's just ridiculously... The comparison is what I want you to get. This massive creature of brutal strength, of terrifying appearance, and just a little, as it were, a youth with a, a sling and a few five small stones. The comparison, the weakness of the boy, the weakness of the youth, the, the puny nature of his weapons, and then the massive strength and fearsome approach and appearance of this great beast of a man and critter. And he's going to attack. That's what you've got here in the temptation. Did you realize that? You've got a man in all his weakness who can get hungry and he can get thirsty. But he is there in the power of God with the sword of the Spirit in his hand. And David went out to meet that giant and he got mocked for it. He got told he would be absolutely shredded. Okay? And his flesh flung to the birds of the air. But David says... I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Jehovah of hosts, the one that you've defied. I'm coming to you in that name. And it was that day that, what is it? The giant fell. And I tell you, fellow Christian, this is what you've got here. The Lord Jesus is standing in the power of the Holy Spirit with the word of God in his hand. Great David's greatest son who has been sent. What for? To destroy him. He's been, who had the power of death. He's been sent, what to do? But to undo the works of the devil. The pressure is terrific in this scene. It is. You enter into the whole thing and stand there and watch. I'd be trembling. This is a ridiculous mismatch, this is. Surely God's going to break in and do something to this devil. He's gone on for 40 solid days. And he's in the wilderness. I mean, he got into the Garden of Eden, a paradise. And he got his hands on the first man, the first Adam. And how long did it take? One temptation, just one. Not every temptation. How long did it go on for? I don't know. Did it go on all day, the conversation in Genesis? It looks to me as though it went on for about 20 minutes. That's all it took to bring out the first Adam down. But the Lord Jesus stands there 40 days, every temptation. What's the Satan's point? What's he doing? What's it all about? I tell you now, the devil knew fully well that if he could put one stain of sin upon this man, Jesus, then there would be no saviour and no sinner would ever be able to draw near unto God. Satan would keep his goods in peace. Satan would hold captive the whole of the human race in the darkness of sin, separated from God. That's what he always did. It's what he always wanted to do. It's what he does to every soul in the room here today who does not know Christ as Saviour. He's got you by the throat. He's deluded you. He's darkened you. He's blinded you. He's captivated you. He's oppressed you. And you don't even know it. So he thought, if he could bring one stain of sin to bear upon the Lord Jesus and the temptation, then Jesus could be no Saviour. Well, what happened? Did he succeed? How does it end? 
When the devil had ended all temptation, he departed from him for a season, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Notice that. He returned, and the Holy Spirit that had come in his anointing, it was there given to him without measure in its fullness, and was there right from the very conception, the power and presence of God, the second person of the Trinity, was there ungrieved and completely unhindered, for Satan had had no success. For he returned in the power of the Holy Ghost, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit is still there ungrieved within him. The presence and power of God is with him completely and again as Satan failed to stop his birth, as failed to destroy him when he was a babe, to defile him when he was a youth, cannot touch him even in a face-to-face confrontation, using every single weapon that he's got, every technique and every tactic that he can think about, every single one of them, he still has failed. As a matter of fact, he made a bad mistake. Because from here on, as the Lord moves out into conflict with Satan, he actually knows every way that he works. You know, you never reveal your forces to the enemy, do you? <laughs> you don't want him to know you've only got so many, you know, so many missiles to fling. You only had three, <laughs> and you got rid of two, and there's one to go. You don't want him to know there's only one to go. How did Churchill, he really prevail in the Battle of Britain? How many Spitfires did he have left? I can't remember. It was about 13, was it, or less than that? And he kept sending them up in a circle over Germany so they could see them, one after the other, after the other. And he, they thought he had an air force left. He didn't. He was down to his last few little flybys, if you get me. <coughs> Satan's revealed what he's got. You see, God is in control. It's a, it's a sheer sense of magnificence here. Satan was deceitful. Satan was crafty. Satan is clever. God is on the throne. God is still on the throne. I'll give you one point. One verse to just crown it off and we'll stop. John chapter 1 and have a look. Just look at John. (laughs) Just look at it. It's an amazing thing. I never realised this before. How did it end? Was he successful? Has he brought one taint of sin? John chapter 1 and it says here, Again the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples. Now, if you go up to verse 29, it says, The next day John sees Jesus coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's when he's declared him and who he is. Yes, all right. But in verse 35, again, the next day after. Now, what I want you to understand is this. Do you realize that the baptism, I'm sorry, the temptation of the Lord Jesus is between those two days? It's between verses 29 to 34, right? And verse 35. John doesn't give us the details But that's where it actually belongs. And so it's as though John, who was already at his baptism, and before his baptism, at the time of his baptism, declared him to be the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who bears away the sin of the world. He made that declaration clear because he knows, he's seen, he has had the witness. And then the Lord Jesus is driven immediately, it says, immediately after the baptism into the wilderness. Now he comes back to to where he was, (coughs) where John is, John the, Baptist, John the Apostle is, and John sees him again. And you know what he says? He says, Behold the Lamb of God. He says, look at him. He's still without spot. He's still without blemish. 
His fitness, it's unmarred. His holiness is unsullied. He's still fit to be the bearer away of the sin of the world, the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Nearer, still nearer, close to thy side. The program of God continues on. Satan's attempt has been restrained. He has been foiled. He has been contained. Our God is marching on. May God move us all this morning in gratitude to the Lord Jesus who brought us back captives to sin and Satan, brought us back to God. Amen. Father, we bow our hearts this morning rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord. So grateful for the time we spent together in our meditations and in our worship. So thankful for the beautiful truth that he has brought us back again. We who truly were afar off, and not just afar off, but held captive by sin and by Satan, oppressed with a burden of guilt under the judgment of God. Yet he has brought us nigh by precious blood. Lord, bless us as we part this morning with the fullness of the joy of our salvation, in the fullness and the joy of what it means to have been made free from sin, from Satan, with victory over sin and death and hell, with the glory set before us and the certainty of a soon returning Saviour and the wonder of a world in which he will reign supreme and gloriously and the day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Oh, unto him who has loved us and kept us and will keep us from falling, we bow this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.